progressively being sanctified. We are being made more and more into the image of Christ. And there's going to come that day where that work that God is doing in us is going to be complete. It will be finished. And I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for that day when sin doesn't cling so closely, when just the, the muck and the mire and kind of the ugliness of my own heart that remains is just made pure and made clean by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on that day, our sanctification will be finished. On that day, the second thing we have to look forward to is we have an inheritance as heirs with Christ. We are called fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God, and He holds nothing back from us. And I just want to read Revelation 21, those famous verses, because that's what we have to look forward to. Verse 1 to 7 says, this is, this is John. He's seeing this vision of what we have to look forward. He says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inheritance. Like what a beautiful picture that I'm sure we've read over and over in Revelation. I don't know about you, but I love to go back to this picture of this day that we have to look forward to when it says he, our dwelling place will be with God. He will be with us. We will dwell with him face to face. We will see him face to face. One day we will get to stand before our creator. We will get to stand before our savior, no longer veiled, but completely able to see and rejoice in him. And there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain because all all of these former things because of sin, because of the fall will have passed away and there will just be rejoicing because that will, all be, that will be all that is left to do in the presence of God. This is our inheritance that we have as followers of Jesus. And then to go along with that, we will have perfect resurrected bodies. 1 John 3.2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We are children of God now, but what we will be, we don't know. We haven't even seen it yet. It hasn't appeared. It's this beautiful thing that will happen in the future on the day of Christ. And there are those who follow Jesus whose lives are filled with just difficulty because of broken body and hurts within their body. There are those that, I mean, as we get older, our bodies start to break down, right? 
They just get more tired and it's more difficult to do things. And all of these things will pass away. We will have these perfect resurrected bodies. And so these are just three things that we have to look forward to as followers of Jesus. And all of this will be fulfilled on this day of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians 1.6. And so what is the day of Christ? We got to know what this is. If, if everything leads to this day, what are we talking about here? And so the day of Christ, it's actually only referenced three times in the New Testament. It's referenced in Philippians twice and once in 1 Corinthians, and it's unique to Paul. But that doesn't mean that this day and talking about this day is unique to Paul because there's other references to this day in the Old Testament and other references to this day in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it refers to it and calls it the day of the Lord. And in some Old Testament and New Testament writings, the day of the Lord is a very sobering day. It's an incredibly sobering day. Isaiah 13.6 says, Wail, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Ezekiel 30 verse 3 says, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds a time of doom for the nations. So now you're sitting there, you're going, wait a second. You just talked about all these glorious things. And then you read these Old Testament scriptures of the day of the Lord. That doesn't sound glorious. Right? Because there's this paradox, right? There's this paradox reality of what's going to happen. Right? Like we inherit things on the day of Christ when the day of Christ Christ comes, but then the scripture also paints that on that day, there's this destruction, there's this doom, there's this judgment. Why is there such a discrepancy between you're going to inherit all of these things, yet there's going to be doom and destruction and judgment on that day? Why? Why does it show both sides of it? And as we move into the New Testament, the picture of this paradox becomes clearer as we understand the story of God's plan of redemption. You see, the Old Testament talks about the day of judgment on the day of the Lord. And as we move into the New Testament, we see a progression of understanding about this day and why this paradox is there between inheritance and judgment. And we come to see that in the New Testament, it reveals that Jesus, it's all centered around Jesus. It's all based on what He has done. And one will experience judgment and one will experience inheritance based on your response to what Jesus has done. And so we move into the New Testament and we see in John chapter 5 this judgment that the Old Testament speaks about has been given by God to Jesus to execute. He is the one who will carry it out on his Father's behalf. In John 5 27 it says, and he, meaning God, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so the judgment that will happen on that day of the Lord has been given to Jesus to enact. Why? Because judgment and inheritance is based on Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and our response to it. See, Jesus says, I did not come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world to reconcile the world to God, and it is through faith in His work 
on the cross that we are reconciled to God. But the natural result of that will mean that judge, there will be judgment for some because there will be people who will not accept Jesus Christ, who will not believe they are in need of salvation before a holy God. So Jesus can rightfully say, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. But by not believing, someone is condemned already and there will be judgment because they remain separated from God who is the giver of life and all good things. This is why when Paul speaks of the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians, he fills in this paradoxical picture more saying it's going to be a day of both affliction and relief, a day of punishment and glory. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, Paul writes, Since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction to those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. A day of rejoicing and a day of mourning is the day of the Lord. And so church, it is an incredibly important day. The day of the Lord is the very culmination of our lives. It is a day that in light of what we read in Scripture should cause us to live with an urgency, especially towards those who do not know Jesus Christ, knowing that on that day there will be joy and there will be suffering. And God's heart is that none should perish. And He has given the task to us to go and preach this gospel so that men and women may know the truth of Jesus Christ and on that day receive their inheritance. And so my challenge to you tonight is to ask and answer this important question, how do we live in light of the day of Christ? Are you, as a follower of Jesus, living in light of that day? You know, my pastor at my old church, pastor named Pastor Barry, he used to say this saying all the time, and it stuck with me. He would say, are you living with eternity stamped in your eye? The day of Christ is our aim as followers of Jesus. We have much to do here, but all that we do here is in light of that day. And so, brothers and sisters, are you living with eternity stamped in your eye? You see, fasting is an aspect of this, of living with eternity in mind. Because remember, Jesus said, Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So when we fast, fasting is the removal of something now in order to grow something, grow a longing for something greater, something eternal. It reflects the reality of the progression of our lives. 
that right now we have what we need. God provides all that we need, but we don't have the fullness of the promises of God. We live in anticipation of the fulfillment of all of His promises. And so fasting is this intentional hunger now to build our longing for heaven, to build our longing for the day of Christ where there will be no hunger. We will step into heaven and we will feast. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, brothers and sisters, the day of Christ should give us immense clarity of purpose for our lives. It is the culmination of why we are here. And so, are you living with eternity stamped in your eyes? And I asked God, I said, what does that look like, Lord, for our church? What does it look like for us in this place, in this time, right now, all of us in this room? How do we live in light of the day of Christ? How do we prepare ourselves for that day? And I felt like the Lord gave me six specific things, six things that we need to be doing to prepare for the day of Christ. Number one, live compassionately. Live compassionately as followers of Christ toward one another and toward outsiders, especially toward outsiders, quote, those who do not know this great purpose, those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who do not understand that Jesus Christ and what we believe about Him and do with that affects our entire life. So many people don't even know that, that what Jesus did for them affects their life whether they know it or not. And so we must live compassionately with those who do not know Jesus as a compassion of the uh, as a reflection of the compassion that Jesus has shown us. What it means practically is obviously meeting physical and spiritual needs in this world. Jesus said in Matthew 25:40, "Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me." So Jesus calls us to live compassionately in light of the day of Christ. Second, He calls us to live objectively in light of the day of Christ, that we would be a God-focused people. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. And so are we a people living like that? There are no other gods. There are no greater things in our life than the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we live in that way? Or are there other things that we're putting ahead of God? God wants us to live ob objectively. He is number one always in our lives. We must constantly be looking to Him first, and all of these things will be added to us. That's what Jesus says, and so we must live objectively God-focused. We must live faithfully, church. We have work to do. Every single one of us in this room has work to do, and to live faithfully means to honor the call of God that He has on each one of your lives. Esther 4.14 says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther, convincing her, Esther, 
Maybe you were brought to this kingdom so that you would be the one that would save the Jews because Esther was terrified to step up and to go into the king's palace or the king's uh, inner sanctum and go and speak to him about the Jews and defend her people because if she went in there and he didn't want her there, she would be killed. So she was terrified. And Mordecai says, yeah, but how do you know that God doesn't have you here exactly for this? Listen, God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to bring deliverance for his people. But he specifically called you for this time to be the person that brings that deliverance to his people. And so we have to understand that for our lives, that God has work for us to do. He has calling for us, every single one of us. And if we don't want to step into it, that's fine. He will find someone else who will do it. But I don't want to be that person that walks through my life going, I'm not stepping into what God actually has for me. And he has to go somewhere else. So church, may we be people who live faithfully, knowing God has work for us to do, being willing to step into that work so that he may use us. Next, we must live thankfully. We must live thankfully. As those who have received much, when we live thankfully, it's just the right way to live. Understanding what we have received from God should cause our hearts to overflow with gratitude. And when we live thankfully, when we live from a place of gratitude, it's not only giving back to God what we rightfully should, but you know what else it does? It protects us from sin. Genesis 39, 8-39, it's a fascinating couple of verses. When Joseph was working in Potiphar's house, we know the story of Potiphar's wife, how she was pursuing Joseph. And it's amazing what this verse says. It says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know what that is? That's a thankful heart. That's a heart. Joseph is recognizing he has held nothing back from me. How could I go and do this when I lack absolutely nothing? And that's the heart that we should have before the Lord. That heart of thankfulness keeps us from stepping into sin. When we sit there and go, God, there's nothing that I don't have. There's nothing that you have not given. You have not provided for me. So how could I then go and do this thing? Thankfulness keeps us from stepping into sin. And so we must live thankfully. Number five, we must live powerfully. We must live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are messengers of God who must be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to step into all that he wants for us. We cannot do it in our own ability. We have an enemy who could just stomp us under his feet. 
We are against principalities and powers that are far beyond us. But we have a power in us that rose Jesus from the grave. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us. And because of that Holy Spirit of God, we are able to do far beyond what we often believe we can do. Not because of our own ability, but because of God who dwells within us. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19-20, What is the immeasurable greatness? Immeasurable. You cannot measure His greatness of power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. This is the power that we have as followers of Jesus. It is immeasurable. And we must walk in it. And last, number six, we must live humbly. We must live as those who understand that there is nothing in our power that can save another. There is nothing in our power that can save ourselves. It is wholly the mercy of God. It is wholly the grace of God. We must live humbly before our Lord. He opposes the proud. But He loves the humble. And it is through the humble heart, it is through the humble man or the humble woman that God will do much. That he will bring much blessing. Second Chronicles 7.14, I pray, church, that we would be this kind of people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and Heal their land. Isn't that something that's so desperately needed in 2024? God, we need a healing over our land. Our country is sick. It needs the power of the Lord Jesus to fall upon it. And that will only happen if we, as his people, humble ourselves and pray and seek and turn from wicked ways, and understand that we have a mission that we must live on. And so may we live humbly as those who have been saved from much. Church, this is how we must live in light of the day of Christ, with compassion, with God above everything else, faithfully, to what he has called us to, thankfully for what he has done for us, powerfully in the power and the might of the Holy Spirit and humbly putting ourselves before him. May we be these kinds of people and we will see beautiful things. We will see his kingdom come and his will be done in our lives and it will spill out from there into our church, and into our community, and into our world. I long for that, church. I long to see that. And I hope that you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
praise you for all of the testimonies that we heard tonight. praise you for all the ways that you have impacted us over the last 21 days. Father, just because this fast comes to an end, may we not stop seeking you. And Lord, I just pray that it would be the change, a change in the atmosphere that would come from that. That we wouldn't just have this perspective that, oh, we're done fasting, now life goes back to normal. No. through our fast, it would change things, change us, change our church. That a hunger would grow deeper for you. That a desire to see your power would grow. That a longing to see men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ and be made new would grow. That we would want to live faithfully day by day in your presence. Father, we plead with you that you would do what only you can do in our lives and through our lives. Lord, I thank you for each one here tonight celebrating. And Father, I just I just pray exactly what, what Jacqueline spoke about. That the results of this fast we would see in the months to come. We would see answers to prayer and be able to look back and say, oh God, I petitioned you for that. And you are faithful. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.